Well, thank you for coming to our lesson one of the starting point class. Uh, this is the first of six lessons um, that we offer to those that are investigating joining Palm Vista Community Church. The first lesson is on the gospel. And I want to start with the scripture because I think it's important for all of us to know this, that whatever church that we decide to join, one of the main things we should look for is their understanding of the gospel and how they build on the gospel. Now, today we're going to be looking at the gospel. So we're going to take the whole lesson to do that. But I want to read this one scripture. It's not in your notes, but it's a scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses uh, chapter 3, excuse me, verses 9 to 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 9 to 15 and this is what it says in the English Standard Version. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, this is the Apostle Paul writing, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So he's talking to the the people in Corinth, which is a church in modern day Greece, and he's saying that we're building, we're the builders, you're the building, you're the field. So you get that? People are the field, the building. Paul, pastors, teachers, uh, Men that are called to lead the church are the builders, or they're the, the, the farmers work in the field. Okay? So, you are God's field, God's building. Verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, we're going we're gonna to argue today that the gospel... Jesus Christ is the gospel. So the foundation is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, those are the leaders of the church, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We are responsible as the leaders of the church to build upon the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how we build will be tested one day. So as you seek to join a church, and as you're investigating joining Palm Vista, what you need to ask yourself is, are these men building on the gospel? Is the foundation solid and secure? The Apostle Paul, also in this letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15.3, says that the gospel is of first importance. It's the first thing. Again, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, it's the very essence of what we preach, the gospel. So, we're going to begin our journey unpacking the meaning and substance behind this word gospel, which literally means good news, what it says about God and what it says about us. So why is the gospel such good news, and why is it appropriate to call it the main thing? Now you should have in your notes there Roman numeral one. We're going to talk about first man's dilemma before God. We must understand man and our condition before the gospel, the good news, makes any sense. So firstly, the bad news is this, that we are sinners And God is holy. We are sinners, 
and God is holy. There's a, a, a fancy theological term for that. It's called total depravity. I'm going to try to tease that out for you this morning, but it's important to understand that because if you don't understand the bad news, the good news really makes no sense at all. So here's the bad news, man's sinfulness. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So, for example, when Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, listen, it's not just that you commit adultery, that's bad, but if you look at a woman to lust for her, you've committed adultery. He said the same thing with murder. It's not just that you kill somebody, but if you hate, that is murder. If you hate, that is murder. Um, so it's not just wrong actions, but it's also the intent of our heart. It's failing to act. It's attitudes. Genesis 6-5, the Lord said that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So page two of your notes. J.C. Ryle, a sin consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. And what is sin's true nature? In essence, sin is rebellion against God. Sin is primarily against God. I think what we've done today is we've made sin about primarily sinning, doing wrong things against one another. It is that. It's not, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. Actually, it's against God. In Psalm 51.4, David has just been convicted of murdering a man and committing adultery with his wife. Listen to what he says. Isaiah, uh, Psalm 51.4 Against you, you only, have I sinned, he's speaking to God, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And sin's universal. Everybody has sinned. There are many, many scriptures that say that. Romans 5.12, all have sinned. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and all have sinned. There's no distinction. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sin's pervasiveness, it's pervasiveness. Man's sinfulness extends to every part of his being. There's nothing in us that isn't affected by sin. And I told you, this is bad news. It says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, none is righteous. We are, we are incapable, apart from God's grace, to please God, to obey God. We are not able to please God. And yet, we are responsible before God. Top of page 3. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. God. So how's that for some bad news? Sins, uh, man's sinfulness. Well, second part of bad news is God's holiness and wrath. God's holiness and wrath. The Bible is clear that God is holy. Now let me explain that to you for a moment. Holiness has two aspects. It means that he's holy other than we are. He's transcendent. And it means that he's morally perfect. Let's talk about the transcendent part first. God is higher, separate, and different than we are. He's wholly other than we are. Isaiah 46, 9 says that. And the second part of holiness, he's morally perfect. That's the one that we're more comfortable with, right? If you're holy, it means you don't do anything wrong. He's morally perfect. 
He's infinitely pure. He's untainted by evil desire. A good scripture to read and study is Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. And this is the prophet Isaiah. He's in God's presence. And, and these, these cherubim and these, these creatures, these seraphim that are, that are around the throne, and they cry, holy, holy, holy. They're that, that section that is highlighted. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and in, we see the holiness of God. He's morally pure. Now, here's the deal. Because God is holy, transcendent, morally pure, he must respond with fierce opposition to sin. This is the meaning of the wrath of God. And I know it's not something that we enjoy thinking about, but it's important. This is the meaning of the wrath of God. God's wrath is his holy response to sin. His personal, active antagonism to sin. Top of page 4. And it derives from his settled opposition to every evil thing. It's right and necessary for God to hate sin and all who practice it. Now, again, difficult, difficult. Hey, I thought God is love. Yes, he is. But see, God is love means that he's opposed to sin. John Stott says it this way. The wrath of God is his steady unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. Let me encourage you to get a book. It's a thin little book by D.A. Carson. D, the letters D.A., those are his first two initials, D.A. Carson. It's a little booklet, and it'll help you with this thought of God is love, God is holy, what are we talking about wrath about, what's going on here? It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. The difficult doctrine of the love of God. And, and, what, and what that book will help you understand is what we're talking about here, that in light of God's holiness, sin has grave and inevitable consequences. I mean, if I love my wife and someone's coming in to do evil to her, I am going to have uncompromising, unending, uh, violent opposition to that sin that's coming, that evil that's coming to my wife if I love her. If I don't love her, I just sit there and do nothing. But if I love her, I've got to be opposed to that sin. And that's God. He's actively opposing sin. And those, these are the consequences. They're in page four. A broken relationship with God. Enslavement to sin and Satan. Colossians 1, 13. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Consequences in this life, the sorrow, the pain, the hurt, the sickness... All these are consequences of sin. And then eternal punishment, the penalty of sin, that we are separated from God's beneficial or benevolent presence. His judgment will be on those who do not repent and believe. That's the bad news. Roman numeral two, God's answer to man's dilemma, the gospel. So here's the question every human being should ask themselves. This is the question I pray for people to ask themselves every day, and I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking to, to answer that question. I mean, if we just come to people and say, Jesus is the answer, many people look at you and say, what's the question? Well, here's the question. How can we be saved from our sins? Bottom of page four. How can we be saved from our sins and the righteous wrath of God? I can't make someone ask that question. You're sitting in this room because I believe you've asked that question. I'm so thankful you have. And so the answer is the gospel, the good news of God's saving work on our behalf through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
the gospel according to Jerry Bridges is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. So now let's look at the motive for the gospel. And here you see that whole deal of the difficult doctrine of the love of God. Hey, I thought you said the love of God meant that God opposes sin with his wrath. It does. But God is love. And the motive for the gospel is God's love and his mercy. His love and his mercy. See, God must punish sin. If he failed to punish sin, he wouldn't be just. If you, did, if you murdered someone and you went before a judge here in Miami-Dade County and he didn't punish you, he just let you off, what would you say about that judge? He's unjust. So God has to punish sin or else he would be an unjust God. He would cease to be God. He's holy, but he's also loving and, and, and in his loving nature, as we see there in 1 John 4, 7 to 8, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So God in his loving nature is going to seek a way to provide mercy to those who are under his wrath. Mercy to those who are under his wrath. There's this great passage in Exodus 33. Moses is asking God to please reveal himself to Moses. And so God puts Moses in this rock. This is not in your notes, but God puts Moses in this rock. And he puts his hand over Moses because Moses couldn't see God's face or he'd die. God's holy, remember? He's transcendent. Moses is a sinner. But he puts, and he, and he moves past Moses. And listen to what he says about himself. So uh, Exodus 33, 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and you will and will proclaim before you my name. And here's his name, the Lord. And I will be gracious or merciful to whom I will be gracious or merciful. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is that deal. God's holy and he's merciful. He's loving and his wrath is against sin. This is the glory of the cross. Because it's at the cross that God is going to be able to still be just and justify those who don't deserve it. This is how the judge can can show mercy to the murderer and still be a just judge. How is that? 1 John 4, 9 and 10. And this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, circle it. That's a fancy word for taking away wrath. You know, Mike, if I propitiate wrath, that means you did something against me that was wrong. So to propitiate it, let's say you stole a bunch of money from me. And I'm angry at you. To propitiate, first of all, you've got to make right what you made wrong. So that means to pay back all the money. And then you've got to do some things really, really good so that I can trust you again. So I, you propitiate my wrath against you. Instead of putting out a hit against you, you know, I, I receive you as my friend. You were my enemy and my friend. Well, that's what God did on the cross. See, on the cross, this is the glory of the cross. God saved us in such a way, this is point number four on page five. He saved us in such a way, in one and the same act, he preserved his uncompromising holiness and expressed his fathomless love and mercy. Romans 3, 25 to 26, God presented him, Jesus, 
as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. There's the justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed before him unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Okay, so, so God on page 5, we see here in the notes that he was able to be just and punish sin and have mercy through Jesus Christ toward us. Now listen to what John Stott says. How then could God express simultaneously his holiness and judgment and his love and pardon? Only by providing a divine substitute. The word atonement is, he's a substitutionary atonement. Okay? If David does something wrong, and I'm his substitute, I say, judge, I'm going to pay his penalty. Justice is done. He goes free. I take the penalty. That's the word atonement. You put the word atonement with propitiation, God takes away that which merited his wrath. That's the glory of the cross. That God would do that for us who weren't even seeking him. That's why it must remain central. That's why if you're in a church, you must ask yourself, are they building on the gospel? That's the foundation that Paul was talking about. Every pastor will be judged on how he builds on that thing. Every pastor will be judged on how he, he builds on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, God, and God's serious about that because his gospel is serious. So in the cross, in that quote there by John Stott on the bottom of page 5, second part of it, only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner, that's Jesus, so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon. Now why would God do that? Well, the very nature of the gospel is grace. If you could summarize it in one word, it would be grace. Grace. This summarizes what God did for us on the cross, top of page 6. Grace refers to God's free and unmerited favor. We must understand this, friends. God was not obligated to show us mercy. I refer you back again to Exodus 33, 18 to 19, especially verse 19, when the Lord says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Mercy, you can't demand mercy. You can't obligate me to show you mercy. That's the very nature of mercy, is that it's free. I choose to give you mercy. Right? If you need mercy, that means you're in a deep, serious trouble. There's nothing you can do to get out of it. But I choose to give you mercy. That's God. He's not obligated. It's free. It's unmerited. It's grace. You cannot earn this from God. But God chooses to give it to you. Look at that, Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are justified by His grace as a gift. You cannot earn your salvation. You can't contribute to it. There's a passage there in your notes, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The, substan the substance of that grace is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Capital C there. In the bottom of page 6. The substance of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. The gospel includes Jesus' birth, his life, his death, 
his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming return. At Palm Vista, we try to, try to capture that in our mission statement. Jesus Christ is the gospel. We worship him. We image him. Next week, we're going to talk about imaging him. That's, that's what we call sanctification, changing from being the scoundrels that we are <laughs> into being the saints that he has made us to be. That's next week. So we worship him. We image him, and we proclaim him. We, we preach Jesus. But Jesus is the gospel. So, his birth. At Palm Vista, we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. She conceived by the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because Jesus is fully man, and he's fully God. He could not have been born of Joseph, right? His, Mary's husband. Because through Joseph comes sin, Jesus was born sinless. Remember, sin came by one man. Adam. So he was born of Mary as a human, but he was without sin. He was without sin. He was perfectly sinless. Top of page 7. The gospel is about Jesus' life. He lived the perfect life for you and me. I cannot obey God every day the way I'm supposed to. Jesus did. He never sinned, guys. Ever. The only one. So, at the end of his life, the one man who did not deserve to be judged for his sin, the one man who did not deserve the wrath of God, what does he do? He goes to the cross. Here we go, the substitutionary atonement, the propitiation, and his death on the cross. It's the focal point of what we preach. It's the focal point of the gospel, A, under number three there on page seven. Jesus' death was substitutionary in nature. He died on our behalf, receiving the legal penalty for our sins and satisfying God's wrath towards us. Atonement, propitiation. Man, just going to be beating that into your heads because that is the gospel. And when you think about that, you are so grateful. You even get up at eight o'clock in the morning to get here for a class on a Sunday. Thankfully, we don't do this at all the time, but thanks for being here, by the way. But, but you're grateful. You're, life changes. God has accepted you. The big question, how can I relate to a holy God though I'm a sinner, has been answered in Jesus. And no matter what we experience, there's joy. Why? Because he paid the penalty for our sins. Be there. He paid the penalty. He forgave our sins, as Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says. And then see, our sins are forgiven and we're justified. We're declared righteous. Listen, if Mike owed me a million dollars, let's say Mike agrees to pay me a million dollars. Not only does he not pay me a million dollars, but he goes into my business, because I'm a really rich guy, and he steals two million dollars. And I catch him, like on the Riviera, French Riviera, Monaco, all right? Mike's in trouble, okay? And so, bam, what's Mike? Well, first Mike's got a debt, and we have a debt. we got to pay. That's the sin. So, boom. Someone pay, give two, $2 million go into my bank account. So now we're at zero. But, Mike, you still have to give me a million. Where am I going to get a million? Someone else comes and get, puts the million in the account to his name. That's what we're talking about. Jesus paid the penalty of the sin. So he took, he wiped out the debt. And then all his good deeds accrue to me like a, a financial term, they, they, they accrue to my account. They're credited to my account. Hey, I go online, I go, a million dollars. How did a million dollars get there? It's Jesus' good works. 
So that's what we're talking about here in C on the bottom of page 7. We're not only forgiven, but we're justified. We're declared righteous. Righteousness is a legal term. It speaks of right standing before God. So God considers the righteousness of Jesus that Jesus achieved as a belonging to us. That's the million dollars now in my bank account. And it's once and for all. This is so important. We, we, we dare not confuse these. What we're talking about here is a, a theological word called justification. Justification. We, it's point in time. It happens once. You cannot go back and redo it. You cannot be any more justified than you are the day that, that God justifies you. It's point in time. Next week we're going to talk about sanctification, which is progressive. All right, top of page 8. Now, his resurrection from the dead is very, very important. As you've been listening in this series on Acts, Peter is talking, always talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Because it is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that God certifies accepted. You know, if he had a stamp and he just went, boom, paid, paid in full. Because that means that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Remember, the penalty for sin is death. Jesus died on the cross bearing the penalty of sin for you and me. He bore the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus then overcame death. His conquest over death and the resurrection shows that sin has been overcome. He won. And that victory resounds through history coming down to us today sitting in this room. He's delivered us from sin and death He's been raised for our justification. Important there, Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. 1 Corinthians 15.17. If and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. But he has been raised. And he lives today. And then Jesus' ascension and return, that's also part of the gospel. Because see, when Jesus ascended, it's when his reign began. the, The kingdom of God has come. The reigning kingdom of God has come. And then, he, so he rose from the dead, that's an event in the past, and one day he will return, that's an event in the future, and when he returns, he will consummate the kingdom. He will, he will complete it fully, and that's it. And until that day, there's still a chance to repent, and until that day in history, we preach the gospel. When he comes on, back on that day, that's it, it's over, it's done. And that's our hope. That's our hope. All right. Third and final point of the, of the lesson. And this is what is distinctive about Palm Vista Community Church. When you hear the term Reformed Theology, now we have to ask ourselves, what is our response? What is our response? And can we respond to this apart from God first intervening in our lives? So here's the question. Do we choose God or does God choose us? Very important question. Let's look at the answer. So, our response to the gospel. Clearly, clearly, this good news must be responded to. All through scripture, you see men preaching, and people will cry out, what must we do? Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, they all screamed, what do we do? So, we must respond appropriately to the gospel. And that response, on the top of page 9, is what we call conversion. Conversion. You've heard the term conversion. So the conversion, according to Wayne Grudem, a theologian, who's written a very good uh, systematic theology. If you've got some extra money, I'd buy it. It's very thick. It's very expensive. It'll be the best purchase you make. Systematic theology. But listen to Wayne Grudem. 
define it. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. So, repentance and faith, very important. Okay? You know, we all see, we all see the caricatures of these hellfire and brimstone preachers screaming, repent! And we kind of make fun of it a little bit. But you know what Jesus came preaching? You know what, you know what he came preaching? Repent. That's what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. So let's take a look at these. They work in tandem. Repentance and faith, they work together. They're separate, but they work together. So let's look at repentance. The word for repentance used in the Bible is a very simple meaning. It means to turn around, change direction. So if we agree that sin is rebellion against God and his rule over our lives, then to repent is to turn back to God and embrace him and his rule and authority over our life. And here's the deal. God commands every man and woman to repent. He commands everybody to repent. Acts 17.30. God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Repentance involves our minds, it involves our emotions, it involves our will, it involves everything that we are. J.I. Packer, in the bottom of page 9, says this, The New Testament word for repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly. Repentance means starting to live a new life. And thus, repentance is a gift from God. It's the grace of God that enables us to repent. 2 Timothy 2.25 Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct and hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Top of page 10. Faith. So that's repentance. Faith. Faith is the instrument, very important, it's the instrument through which saving benefits of the cross come to us. It's the instrument through which the saving benefits of the cross come to us. Salvation is by grace, and grace is its ground, but it is through faith. So the the ground of salvation is grace. God chose to have mercy upon us. But the way it gets to us, the, the tube through which it comes, is faith. That's the instrument. Faith. It must be exercised before salvation is received. And it's both a gift of God and an act of our will. Now, here's here's how those come together. God gives us faith, but we are responsible for exercising it. So let's look at faith. Faith in the New Testament, it's used in the context of salvation. It means truly committing oneself to God with an unwavering trust in His promises and a persistent loyalty and obedience. Saving faith includes knowledge. We must have certain information. The gospel revealed to us. That's what I'm sharing with you this morning. I love this passage in Romans 10. How will they know? How will they call on the one they have not believed? How will they believe on the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Oh boy, that should should cause us to go out and share the gospel with everybody we know. Two, it includes an assent. We must believe what is revealed to be true. Hebrews 4, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Hebrews 4, 2. They've had the gospel preached to them. The message they heard had no value because they heard, did not combine it with faith. And three, trust. We must place our trust in what is revealed. I can tell you all day long that I believe that that desk will hold me up. I believe it. You know, and, and so I kind of go, I believe it. You know, here's faith. 
It either is going to hold me up or it's not. I just jumped on the desk. Right? That's faith. That's really putting everything on it. The weight of my life. Everything on that. You know, you play that game where you fall back, you know, the, you know, catch me, right? Well, you know, some people, you know, they kind of go like that. But I mean, faith is just, you just go back. You're caught or you're not. We're saved by faith alone. But true saving faith, bottom of page 10, will be validated by a lifestyle that testifies to the reality of faith. True saving faith will always lead to obedience. Now, next week, we're going to talk about this. There is a discussion in Christianity today about this whole idea of obedience and change and grace and what is really grace. And uh, we're going to talk next week about that. But true saving faith will be seen in your life through change. That doesn't mean you're perfect. doesn't mean you stop cussing overnight or stop, you know, giving people the finger on the palmetto. I know none of you ever do that, right? And it doesn't mean that you stop... Whatever you're doing that you shouldn't be doing, it's a little embarrassing to, to, you know, tell people. As a pastor, it's always horrifying for me to think if I ever do that and then the person like comes to church on Sunday, you know, wouldn't that be terrible? I recognize that guy. <laughs> He's the one that tailgated me for five miles, yelling at me. Not that I would ever do that. Okay, so, so change, you've got to have change, but it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect overnight. You hear me? So if you're sitting here thinking, whoa, I still do some things that whoa, I don't want everybody to know about, fine. But is the direction of your life changing? You know, it, It's not perfection, it's direction. Remember repentance? I'm walking away from God and God says, he, he gets me, he calls me, he pulls me around, he gives me the grace, and I repent. So now I'm, I'm, I'm going in the right direction. You know, it's, it's, it's progressive. I'm walking in the right direction. Some days I'm running. Some days I'm just shuffling. Man, some days I'm just leaning forward. There's some issues in our lives that are so difficult, it's just hard to change, right? But true saving faith is going to mean change in your life. Top of page 11, and it's a gift from God. Listen, it's not a work that earns us favor with God. Faith is not a work that earns us favor with God. No way. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. So, the outward response to our inward repentance of faith, we believe here at Palm Vista is water baptism. So we are reformed in our theology, but we would be what are called credo-baptists. We believe that baptism occurs when you believe, credo, a creed, a belief, a credo-baptist church, that we baptize those who put their faith in Christ and are are saved. And so we believe that the Bible teaches us, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go, preach Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38, when Peter preached, he said, repent and be baptized. Listen, baptism does not save you. This isn't the church of Christ. We do not believe that at all. But it's, an, it's, a, it's a, an obedient response to what's gone on inside of you. It's, it's that outward symbol, a sign of the covenant that God has given you. And uh, Romans 6.4 We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might live in newness of life. We we practice baptism by immersion. So that idea that we're buried with Christ, we're raised with him. If you have not been baptized as a believer, I'd love to talk to you about that. It's a great joy. And I believe you're walking in obedience to the gospel. All right, final section here. What makes our response possible? So if sin is pervasive... If, if the corrupting effects of sin are all over us, if by nature we are sinners, how in the world can we then be saved? I love what it says in Ephesians 2, 1. 
very clearly. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So if you're dead, how can you respond to what I'm saying to you? If you're sitting there in your seat right now, spiritually dead, your eyes are rolling in the back of your head. You're thinking, Phew. I see Cuban coffee up there, and I'm hoping there's still some there, because when he's done talking, I'm going to get some, because I am comatose right now. Would he just stop talking? But if you're alive, right, you're responding to varying degrees. And if God's making you alive right now, it's the joy of conversion. You're going to respond with repentance and faith. You see what I mean? I mean, if my cat got run over by a car, I could call that cat all day. The cat's not going to respond to me, right? God, you know, but someone's got to give the cat life, then they can respond. See, this is that idea, this is that reformed theology deal that we got going on. So how can we respond? Well, here's how we respond. We are chosen in eternity past. Very important, top of page 12. Chosen in eternity past. Friends, this, this violates our human pride. It violates our, our desire to be in control. I want to be the one that chooses God. But clearly, my friend, Scripture says He chose us. Ephesians 1, 4, and 6. For He chose us in Him, that's, that is in Christ, before the creation of the world. Go figure. We're in the deep end of the pool on that one. To be holy and blameless in His sight. So He didn't just choose me to forgive me, and then I just limp into heaven, just continuing to sin. No, He chose me to make me holy and blameless, like Jesus. In love, he predestined us to be adopted. He didn't just choose me to be on his team. He chose me to be in his family, to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with what? His pleasure and will, for his own glory. Not because I deserve it. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So this is how it happens. First, we're effectively called. So God's choosing of us is evidentially results eventually results in his calling us and drawing us to himself. So if you're chosen in eternity past, sometime in your life, God's going to call you. Now remember, if you're the dead cat lying on the side of the road, can you answer that call? If you took a corpse and laid them in a phone booth, right? There's no phone booths anymore. That shows you how old I am, right? All right? Put a cell phone in the corpse's you know, pocket, all right? You can call that corpse all day. Will the corpse answer that phone? Someone's got to give that corpse life. That's us. We're the corpse. But then God, he gives, he calls us. He draws us to himself. This is called effectual calling or an effective calling. God's the one who draws. God's the one who opens up the mind. God's the one who regenerates. See, we're born again. If you ever heard that term being born again, that's the thing of God making the dead cat alive, making the corpse in the phone booth alive, making the corpse with the cell phone in his pocket alive. It's called regeneration. So when God calls us, he then changes our hearts so that we can freely respond. And this change is called regeneration. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. That's the greatest, that's the greatest miracle. I love it when God does that miracle. I want to see that miracle happen more in this church. More conversions. More exciting stories of people saying, I was dead. I could care less about God. Suddenly one day, bam, I became alive. God called me. God called me. It's supernatural. Top of page 13. I love this quote by Mark Dever, who's a guy that we would uh, highly respect. He says this, Scripture is clear in teaching that we are, all, we are not all journeying toward God. Some having found him, others still seeking. Nope. Instead, Scripture presents us as needing to have our hearts replaced, 
our minds transformed, our spirits given life. We can do none of this for ourselves. There is no pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. There is no cleaning yourself up so that eventually I can go to church and get saved. No way. God does this. The change each human needs, regardless of how many, how we may outwardly appear, is so radical, so near our roots, that only God can bring, a, bring it about. We need God to convert us. E, we must act, but God gets the glory. God gets the glory. So we must respond. The gospel is central, but it is God who gets the glory. And so, there you have it. We begin our starting point class where I trust all of you have begun your journey. And if you haven't, I trust that the Lord has spoken to you. And we'll talk more about that. It's been a joy to share with you uh, this morning. Let me just say two things before we move to questions. And at this point, I'll turn the recording off. Uh, Number one, during the six weeks you'll hear me teach, I think I'm teaching most, if not all, the classes. And then at the end of this process... If you still want to join the church, what we do is we provide a time for you to have a pastoral interview so that we can sit down together and just talk. Uh, you don't have to wait till then, but if some of the things I just shared today uh, are like, whoa, what's he talking about? Or man, what's that all about? You can jot notes down here on this. Ask me then. Send me an email. Call me, whatever. I'm available. So that we, that we start where God starts, and that's at the gospel, and we never move from the gospel at Palm Vista Community Church because we're responsible for building on Jesus Christ. All right, thank you. I'm going to stop the um, recording now and take questions.